innovate or die. That's what Peter Drucker said. And I think a lot of people took that to mean that you had to create a company that disrupted an entire industry and you should be looking for ways to innovate on your products and services like nobody ever thought about. But I really think it was misunderstood. I think in a lot of ways, what Drucker was talking about was a value that said, you have to innovate like you have to be trustworthy, that, that innovation has to be built into the core of how you serve your customers. It's like this constant optimization uh, is innovation as opposed to this great giant disruption. On this episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast, I visit with Dave Robertson. He is the author of The Power of Little Ideas, a low-risk, high-reward approach to innovation. So guess what we're going to talk about on this show? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Dave Robertson. He is on the faculty at the MIT Sloan School of Management and also the co-author of a book we're going to talk about today, The Power of Little Ideas, a low-risk, high-reward approach to innovation. So, Dave, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rob. So, John, sorry, John. <laughs> that, that's all right. You know, we'll we'll keep that in there too. We're not going to edit that out. That was too good. So, um, let me ask you a quick question. And this may sound like a silly question, but um, bear with me on it. How would you actually describe what innovation is? I think there's so many people that are told you have to innovate, and you know, innovation is such a great thing. And, and I think a lot of people then kind of like go, okay, but what is it? I mean, you know, how do I do it? It's hard. Yeah, so I, I think that is a really important question. In fact, I, I start out my class on innovation with exactly that question, you know, because I think the the way you define innovation affects how you manage, you know, where you look for it, what you ask for, what kind of innovation you get. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think uh, – I think too often we see definitions of innovation that are, you know, those insanely great new products that that change the change markets, disrupt the fortunes of companies, revolutionize, you know, industries, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's important, right? I mean, that kind of innovation matters, but it's pretty rare. And I think uh, I, I think. Uh, an improvement, you know, a new way. The the definition I like is a new match between a solution and a need. Um, and so it doesn't have to be a new solution and it doesn't have to be a new need. But if you can somehow bring together things in a different way, combine things in a different way, uh, I think that counts as innovation. Yeah, and I, and I wonder sometimes if people that are truly innovative are just being strategic. As well, I mean, you you have a case study in the book of Apple, and I think you know everybody thinks of them as the greatest, or at least Steve Jobs' you know contribution is the greatest innovator in the world. And when I read your case study, it just feels like he was being strategic. Well, and I would argue that it it's less strategic than it may appear. Yeah. I mean, everybody talks about iTunes as this amazing, right. huge, innovative leap forward, but the fact is, iTunes for its first two years was an MP3 management system that he'd bought from, you know, he purchased an existing company mm. that was competing in a market with other competitors out there to do MP3 management. So 
Another element of this idea of innovation, um, I, I'm a big Peter Drucker fan. And, you know, he's, I think he's attributed with something, saying something like innovate or die in, in one of his books. And I think, I think that gets kind of misunderstood a lot of times. I, I wonder if he was talking about the idea of innovation being a value, you know, as opposed to disruption, that it, that it's, you know, it's like be trustworthy or die. <laughs> um, what, what's your thinking on that? Uh, yeah, right. I mean, if you don't innovate, then you become a commodity. Uh, you know, I completely agree. So you have, you outlined in the book, uh, another way, you know, what you call the power of little ideas is really a sort of a systematic way of looking at innovation, not as, you know, being this big disruptive thing or even this incremental thing, but just as a, almost like a process, I guess. Uh, you want to kind of map out your, I think it's three stages or, or three kind of core components, and, and then we can break each of them down a little. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the fundamental idea is that, it, you know, we, we often talk about um, innovation in terms of, um, you know, using new technologies, uh, right? So everybody uses that example of digital photography as disrupting the industry and putting Kodak out of business. And that was, of course, nothing new in terms of, you know, we've been taking pictures for a century, but it was a very new way of doing it. And of course, that counts as innovation, right? So you can innovate in that direction. You can also innovate in terms of the, um, you know, finding new needs. Uh, sometimes this is called blue ocean strategy, those latent unmet needs. Um, I always, I, I think of the Egg McMuffin as the opposite of the digital camera, Right. The Egg McMuffin was the first fast food uh, breakfast at scale. And it was basically making a sandwich, you know, which McDonald's knows how to do and wrapping it up and putting it in a warming tray and serving it to people in a fast food environment. Well, you know, that that there was nothing new about the technology for that. Right. I mean, every every step in the process was something that McDonald's knew quite well. But fast food breakfast was an unmet need, and it turned out to be a very powerful need. And, of course, McDonald's, you can get that 24 hours a day now. So that's that's kind of another way you can innovate. But a third direction to innovate is um, kind of around your product. So think of it as not, not just a, a two-by-two matrix, but a two-by-two-by-two um, maybe that's my big contribution to management thinking is going away from the two by two matrix and making something more like a, a hologram. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, uh, in my previous book about Lego, I talked about how, you know, they, they went away from the brick and tried to do all kinds of disruptive and new play experiences, disruptive technologies and new play experiences. And that almost put them out of business. And when they went back to the brick, and then start, started surrounding that with games and stories and events at the Lego store and other things like that, that people returned to the brick. And, and when I looked around for other uh, examples like that, I started seeing them everywhere of companies that weren't so much innovating in the product as innovating around the product. And by doing so, really helping their customers get more value from the product and that's the that's the point of the book is is uh, thinking about you know what is the value of your product, and more broadly, what is the customer trying to do with your product? And then the third step is how do you um, how do you actually help that customer get value from your product? What are the other complementary innovations that will make your product more compelling, more valuable, more useful to your customers, and then bringing them all to market? 
Yeah, so a lot of companies sit around in boardrooms and innovate, right? And and I think what you're suggesting is in a lot of ways paying to paying just hyper, hyper attention to the customer is probably where the innovation lies. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And um but it's paying attention to the customer in a different way. Yeah. Right? It's not going out and saying uh, you know, one of the stories I use in the book is uh, GoPro, which I think is a wonderful case study of innovation because of the number of different ways they've innovated or not. Yeah. Um, and we can we can talk about that. But, you know, Sony came after GoPro once it started seeing this, you know, five years of 90 percent annual sales growth right. between 2010 and 2015. Sony came after GoPro. And what they did is they they talked to the customer very carefully and said, what do you want from a waterproof action camera? And they came out with a better camera than GoPros. But GoPro was innovating not just in the camera itself, but also around the camera. So they have mounts, they have desktop software, they have a smartphone app, they have a wonderful social media site, you know, all kinds of, of different things that help that help their customers not just, you know, shoot raw footage of adventures outside, but also turn those into very compelling music videos and post those for their friends. And so that, you know, Sony listened to the customer. They commissioned a team to develop a better product. They developed a product that had, you know, more pixels. It had noise reduction. It had uh, image stabilization. And it was a third cheaper than GoPros. And they got killed in the market because they weren't innovating around the product. And that was the terms of competition in their industry. Hey, thanks for listening to the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. If you like this one, you might also like my other podcast, The Consulting Spark, where I interview independent marketing consultants and agency owners talk about how they built their business and the struggles they face and what they love about being in this business. So you can check it out at Duct Tape Marketing Consultant. Dot com. So what about, um, and, and I'm not sure if this is what you're really getting at, is those companies that, you know, that innovate around their product. But what if you're in an industry where your product is maybe going away, even though it's a cash cow today? I, I, the, the example I love to use is newspapers. You know, classified advertising in newspapers was a cash cow. And they wouldn't innovate around it because it meant killing the cash cow. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's something that I, I really find um, disappointing about the innovation literature is that there's too many authors that say there's one best way to innovate. Right. You know, there's the blue ocean people who say everything is about blue ocean and you got to find blue oceans. And for your listeners who aren't familiar with that, the blue ocean metaphor is um, – Red oceans are red because there's so much competition that there's blood in the water. There's sharks circling and they're attacking each other. And, and what you have to find is that unmet need, that that latent need, which only you fill. And so you're sailing in blue oceans. Well, you know, GoPro actually started out as a blue ocean company. Yeah. They said it was started out by a surfer who figured out how to waterproof his camera and strap it on the front of his surfboard. And so it really was a blue ocean type of innovation. Literally, right. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> and then, uh, then, then later, of course, he figured out that it wasn't enough to just have a waterproof, ac- rugged action camera. That he uh, had to create more mounts. So now you can mount it on your surfboard or your bicycle or your helmet or your chest or my favorite, your dog. Right. Um, they they do. They sell a yeah, dog yeah, mount. Yeah, yeah. Some great, and, um, great, great videos and, of you know the dog running around the house and eating and stuff. It's an old, you know, when you're not there, it's strangely yeah. entertaining. Yeah, and uh, and then also, of course, the desktop software, the smartphone app, the social mm-hmm. media site, all that stuff. And that's how they held off the competition from Sony and other players. But now, as uh, as smartphones are getting more and more rugged and waterproof, yeah. they're getting disrupted. You know, GoPro is getting disrupted. You look at – since 2015, I mean, they, they had a pricing mistake and they, they built a drone that tended to fly off and or crash – and, you know, they made some other mistakes, but still, you know, the smartphone's getting a lot more rugged and waterproof. They have and, phones and, and you can drop and you have to yeah. worry about. It. Yeah, and the camera's getting better. And the cameras are getting better, and the yeah. memory's getting larger, so yeah. you can capture more video without, you know, on, on your smartphone. And so, you know, they're getting disrupted. And, you know, I think this comes back to um, you, if you're going to be an innovation leader – you have to have a full tool belt, right? I mean, you've got to have not just a hammer, um, you know, like a blue ocean strategy hammer, but you've also got to have um, disruptive innovation. How do you respond to disruption? And that's what GoPro mm-hmm. is struggling with now. Yeah. But also, you know, they got a couple more years of 90% growth because they're really good at this third way innovation that I talk about in the book. And I think I think the tough thing for a lot of companies, this especially when you talk about this disruptive space, is that sometimes even if they see the writing on the wall, it means you know gutting something that is currently making a lot of money. Uh, a lot of times, right? I mean that that was I think why Kodak was so slow to get into digital uh, it, because it meant throwing out the business that was making them billions of dollars. Yeah, and I think uh, Christensen and his colleagues uh, have captured that very yeah. well. That that what happens with disruptive innovation is that you get those uh, the your best customers aren't the ones being disrupted. Your highest margin business right. isn't suffering. It's that low end stuff that you um, uh, that that you see being disrupted, and so you just uh, you say, "Fine, take it." But then the technology. Uh, yeah, it matures very rapidly, and before you know it, you're three development cycles behind, and they're taking over the main part of your market, and you find yourself late to the party, and, and uh, you're out of business before you know it. And so he's captured that very well. I don't think it happens that often, though. Yeah. I mean, give me give me three examples that don't include, you know, GoPro or hard disks or, you know, there's there's three or four examples that are used all the time. Sure. And outside of those, you just don't hear a lot. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of people cite some of the sharing economy stuff as disrupting some industries, you know, rental mm. industries and car industries and taxis and things. But but again, I. Uh, I agree. We tend to focus on those ones that are like really big and and everybody talks about. But let me ask you this. So so your kind of third way, you know, theory does hinge very much or at least the first step is, you know, what is our key key product? Um, Could you apply the same thinking or point of view to a let's say a consulting company that doesn't really view what they do as a product? Oh, sure. Right. I mean, because I think. whether you're a product company or a service company, um, sometimes the reason that customers do or don't hire you 
has not much to do with the the product or service itself, that central thing that you're you're selling, um, but things around it. You know, maybe you're just hard to do business with, or maybe you know, once you leave, it's difficult to get value from that. Um, you know, I think uh, you, John, uh, you know, you you have a podcast that a lot of people listen to and value. But I was checking out your website, and you do a lot of things around that to help people oh, get value from. The ideas that you talk about in your podcast. I mean, you're kind of a third way guy yourself. Well, it's thank you for saying that because I've I've always felt that that that's what I think most you know small businesses need to do is they have to have these kind of um, convergent streams of income that depend on each other. I speak, I write uh, books, and and those things actually help each other. And I think that that in a lot of ways you you could look at as a family of products that are kind of serving the same need. And that, uh, that approach I think is something that pretty much any small business should be looking at. You know, what, what, what's, if I sell a $10,000 product, what's the hundred thousand dollar product that maybe 10 or 15% of my customers would buy. And, and I've always kind of had that point of view. Right. But you know, so say you, uh, or any consultant work with a company, um, you know, after you leave, it's helpful to have, you know, maybe it's a, a follow up thing. So sure. it's not, you know, an intensive consulting engagement, right. but it's maybe, you know, a, a weekly phone call yeah. and it's sending along some articles and it's, hey, have you thought about listening to this podcast that I did a year ago? What this person is saying is directly relevant to the challenges you're facing right now. And, 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 right? right. I mean, that there's, there's a lot of things around a core product or service that can really add a lot of value to that and can differentiate you enough that people were, are willing to pay more for that core product or service, you know, versus somebody else's who's pretty similar. So a related question, and again, this, this, I'm, I don't know if you have data on this, this may just end up being an opinion, but you know, a lot of times people feel this pressure to change stuff, to innovate, and you know, maybe they don't need to, maybe what's they've got going is working, is working well. And, and sort of the, the, the drive to innovate is more around being bored than with what they're doing than anything else. Is is there a time when innovation or at least looking for innovations can be harmful? Um, well, so my whole approach to innovation is is uh, the first step should almost be where do you not want to innovate? Mm. Um, and I think every company that's grown to any significant size, even small companies, you know, they have a set of customers that want what they're selling, right? That that bought from them yesterday, that are going to buy from them today, that are going to want to buy from them tomorrow. And of course, you know, if innovation is defined broadly, that continuous improvement of the product, you know, adding a feature here, cutting the cost there, that always should happen. But I, I think uh, an important first question to ask is, where are you not going to innovate? What are those um, things that you did yesterday that you're going to do today that you're going to do tomorrow that... Um, you know, that, that your customers value and then starting to understand, well, what else, what are they trying to do with that product or service and then figuring out how to innovate around it. I think that's always useful. But, um, you know, I did an analysis. One of the things I, I've done, this is a very unscientific study. Um, I assigned to my MBAs and executive MBAs a paper. And so I've got hundreds of these papers over the past couple of years. And 
I say compare two companies, one of which has won and one of which has lost in a particular industry or market, right? So it wouldn't be Sony, for example, but it would be action cameras. And a lot of people did the Sony versus GoPro in the action camera uh, market. Mm. And I tend to get a lot of the same examples. In fact, I've, I've said you can't do Uber, you can't do Facebook, you can't do Airbnb, you know, all the ones that you hear about again and again because you're not going to learn much. And, um, and I'm just, you know, I, please don't put me through reading another one of those case studies. And so I ask for, you know, interesting examples of one company who has out-innovated another. And then what I try and do is categorize them. How did the winning company innovate? And the most frequent reason for one company winning against another is they just developed a better product consistently over time. I mean, I just read a really wonderful one about women's razors. And Bic was the first one to offer a razor for women. And of course, you know, shaving your legs and, and armpits and so forth is, is a different type of shaving than shaving your face. And, and, you know, Bic realized that and came out with a product. But then Gillette just out-innovated them. And there wasn't, you know, they offer complementary products, but it really is about just a, one product being consistently better than the other. And that's the most frequent reason why one company wins against another, is that they just develop a better product. And then the second most common is um, Blue Ocean, that, you know, a company finds an unmet need and gets to that market first and wins in that market because they discovered it, they understood the unmet need, and they, saw, they uh, satisfied that need. And then pretty third, pretty close third is this third way that I talk about of innovating around an existing product. And, um, you know, that it's not incompatible with making a better – I mean, GoPro has been making a better camera consistently over the years. But the reason they beat Sony is because they were innovating around that product, not because their product was better. Um, and then a distant, distant fourth is disruption. I mean, there's just not that many examples of it. Tell me where this, where you think this fits in. I know a lot of companies, particularly established companies, you know, and, and you know, heaven forbid, public companies that you know have to make decisions for reasons you know other than innovation. Um, you know how do how do they address the fact that sometimes what happens is the buyer behavior changes dramatically. Uh, example I love to use all the time is is you know I've been with this what I would call kind of old stodgy bank you know for many many years and I like them because they are personal they know my name they're small my kids wouldn't bank there if you paid them because they don't have all the bells and whistles and branches and technology that can deposit you know your check without actually going to the bank and you know so how do how does a you know a company that's established in a market with a certain buyer behavior that is tailored to that market adjust to the fact that the next generation's buying behavior is different Mm, good question. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think things like that do change. And, you know, again, I think you've got to innovate and, and to meet the needs of that new market segment. And sometimes, you know, of course, sometimes that means making a different product. Yeah. Um, but other times it just means surrounding that product with compliments. So for banking, for example, I think you can still have branches on every street corner and you can have ATMs all over the place and you can have personalized service for old farts like you and me. Um, but then maybe you also need that smartphone app so that your kids can bank the way that they want to bank. Yeah. And I think that 
I think that the key there is recognizing that you're missing out on that opportunity, I suppose. And that's that's probably where some real disruption has happened, where somebody's come in and said, hey, here's how 30-year-olds want to buy. And they build a company around that and sort of grab that space where maybe it wasn't even a new product. It was the way the product was delivered, if you will. Yeah. And, and I think that 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 part of disruption is underestimated and completely misdiagnosed yeah. in the in the popular literature. Yeah. So I have a whole chapter about Apple and Lego about how they're very similar in the sense that they've ended up being quite disruptive by accident. Yeah, um, right, that right. Apple when it came out with iTunes and the iPod in 2001, they were not trying to disrupt the music industry. And and anybody who doubts that just go back and read Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. But what he was trying to do was complement the Mac. He was trying to sell more Macs, and he fought like crazy the the um, uh, the push to put iTunes on the IBM platform, right? Because again, he wasn't trying to disrupt the music industry. He was trying to help people use the Mac in a more powerful, useful, compelling way. And one of those ways was, you know, help you manage your digital life was the way he put it. And in particular, digital music. And so he meant the iTunes and iPod as compliments to the Mac for the Mac platform and really resisted sending it out. But of course, you know, then the Mac, then the iPod and iTunes became the iTunes store. And then uh, they put iTunes on a phone, and then it became the iPhone. And it, you know now they get more money from the uh, small screen than they do from the big screen. Right. And similarly, Lego, Lego never meant to be a force in movies, yeah. um, but they've got, of course, two movies coming out this year: the Lego Batman movie and the Lego Ninjago movie. And those uh, those are big properties for them. And all of a sudden. You know, Disney might be looking over its shoulder at Lego yeah. as a storytelling company with uh, toys that help kids play out the story um, and theme parks. I don't know if you've uh, noticed, but there's lots of these little Lego discovery sure. centers yeah, that are popping up in yeah. second-tier mall space all over the country. Yep, yep. Yeah, we have one uh, in Kansas City, uh, so I am familiar with it. So, Dave, where uh, can people find out more about you and your work and uh, obviously uh, purchase The Power of Little Ideas? Yeah, so uh, I'm redoing my website right now. But uh, I, um, uh, there's something about the book at Inonavi, that's I-N-N-O-N-A-V-I dot com. Uh, of course, the book The Power of Little Ideas is available at your favorite bookseller online or offline. Um, and... Uh, uh, and then I have my own podcast, Innovation Navigation, uh, that they can listen to. And I talk about this, but also other things. I mean, I've got a disruptive innovator on the podcast, a guy who uh, used technology to uh, um, to design forks and spoons for people with hand tremors. Hmm. Fascinating story and a great example of disruptive innovation. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's one of the rare uh, examples I could find. You know, it's funny. I bet you could <clears throat> write an entire book, probably somebody has already, uh, just about some of these uh, disruptive innovations that were created because somebody just went, how come I can't get a blah, blah, blah <laughs> anywhere? Mm -hmm. You know, and they yep. said, well, I'll just make one, <laughs> by gosh, and then it became a company. Well, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate this really fun stuff to talk about and uh, encourage uh, listeners to go uh, check out The Power of Little Ideas. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure.
Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. I wonder if you could do me a favor. Could you leave an honest review on iTunes? Your ratings and reviews really help, and I promise I read each and every one. Thanks.